me ask you to take a snapshot of your relationship right now, of your marriage right now, if you have one, of your relationship if you're dating someone. Take a snapshot. What does it look like? Does it look like the perfect picture? Does it look like that, like it's like you posed, but you didn't pose or you didn't pose, but you actually posed. Did, did, did you, did you create a story in that? Most of our story, most of the way we take photos today, we're trying to tell a story. And the question that I have for you, does your picture match your reality? Does the picture of your relationship match your reality? If you were to go on Lori and I's Facebook page, I could take you, Lori could take you to some pages and some photos of us when right before the photographer took the photo, we had an argument. But we know how to fake it till we make it. And we put the smile on and there's family dynamics going on all under the surface, but we are smiling for the photos. And so again, did our reality match our photo? Does our photo match our reality? So think about it. Does your photo match your reality? Now that's a, that's a, that's a common thing to think about today because we're with our social media age, Instagram, Snapchat, Facebook, we're always doing this to capture and tell a story, the narrative that we're wanting to be said about us. Whether it's true or not, that's, again, that's the whole, whole conversation. Is the reality match the picture? Does the picture match the reality? Um, you know, we, we've said before that pictures are worth a thousand words. Well, evidently, Facebook thinks Instagram picture uh, is worth a billion words, okay? A billion dollars, actually, uh, because that's what they paid for it in 2013, because they knew that we like our pictures. We like our selfies, even with our selfie sticks. We like our selfies. We like this generation that we're living in is the selfie generation. We take dangerous dangerous selfies. The more dangerous, uh, the more on the edge, the more unique, the better. Uh, we get a little bit careless sometimes though. Again, uh, back in March, there's two people. One person was mauled in a, by a jaguar in a zoo in Arizona uh, because they crossed the barriers and had their photo made near a jaguar and the jaguar thought it was a little close. And so he started, decided to swipe at him. Uh, another one in the Grand Canyon fell off the edge of the Grand Canyon, man from Hong Kong, because he was taking a selfie. And just as of yesterday, day. You may have heard this. In Arkansas, there was somebody that was taking a photo and fell off a cliff. Um, not good. You know, we get a little on the edge sometimes um, to, to communicate a story, a narrative. Does the narrative, does the story, does our story match our picture? Does our picture match our story? Think about it. Uh, think about it. What if Jesus had a Facebook page? What if Jesus had Instagram? What his story, what would his story say about him? Uh, what would his, what would his uh, narrative be on, on his story? What would, if you were filling out the Jesus profile, what, what would you put at? You know, when I grew up, I grew up with a certain picture of painting of Jesus that I literally, I probably to my teenagers, I mentally thought, okay, that's what Jesus, that's what Jesus must look like. Because in church, in my grandmother's house was this photo. Or this painting of the print of this. How many of y'all grew up with the, this photo? You, when you think of Jesus, that's the square jaw, lights, colored brown, maybe white skin Jesus. Square jaw, uh, but clean cut at the same time. A little bit flowing hair uh, with locks and all that kind of stuff. That's the Jesus I grew up with. This is the Renaissance painting of Jesus, okay? This is, this is probably not the real Jesus, okay? I want us today to talk about Jesus if he was building a Facebook page. 
all right? If he had a Facebook page, what would it say? What would it say about him? What would it look like on him? And you think, Mike, this is a really weird message on Palm Sunday. I think it will make sense if you'll hang with me long enough through this. Because I want us to understand who Jesus is. Not the picture in our minds, but the reality of who he is. Let's make sure our picture matches our reality. Let's make sure the narrative is a true narrative and not our created narrative of who Jesus is. So who is Jesus? What does he look like? Let's find the book of Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53. Now you might immediately, if you're anywhere in the biblical awareness of of time and history and spans of, of history, you will know that Isaiah was written years, centuries, eight centuries to be exact, before Jesus ever walked the earth. But we're going to build a social media profile of Jesus off of Isaiah 53. Because outside of reading through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which we just don't have time for today, outside of reading through those, you probably cannot in one single chapter of maybe the entire Bible get the most full and comprehensive picture of Jesus outside of going back in time, back 800 years before he ever walked the earth, and listening to a prophet named Isaiah when he prophesies about a coming Messiah. He prophesies about him, and there's been all manner of who is this, who is that, and but 99% of the scholars, at least I'm exposed to, will point to that this includes a messianic prophecy of Jesus, which they're loaded throughout the, from Genesis through Malachi, there are messianic prophecies of Jesus, Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming, look out for him. Now, let's understand who Isaiah is. Isaiah is one of the major prophets, literally major because it's the largest book of the, Old Testa- of, the, of the prophets in the Old Testament. So he is a major writer, okay? Uh, as far as when he was writing, he was writing during the time of Neo-Assyrian era when they were kind of ruling and conquering the world. He was writing with the contemporaries of Jonah, Amos, Hosea, and Micah. Isaiah, by trade, was a scribe. He was an educator. He educated people on the law, on on the scriptures. He was married to a lady who was a prophetess. So they were kind of a teaching duo team, if you will. They had two sons. And in this process, outside of Isaiah chapter 6, his calling, probably Isaiah chapter 53 is the most quoted from chapter in all of Isaiah. And it gives us this clear, almost crystal clear picture of the life of Christ. So we're going to get, in this profile of Jesus, we're going to get a clear picture of Jesus 800 years before he comes. Now go figure that one. That's like me saying the Boston Red Sox are going to win the World Series in 800 years from now, which they probably will. But that aside, the, the, the reality that I could project out and say the Boston Red Sox are going to win the World Series. It's going to take him seven games, and this is going to be the name of the pitcher, and he's going to be on the mound. He's going to pitch this many pitches, and da 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 To be able to speak with that level of accuracy, you'd think you are a prophet, as Isaiah was. If I was able to even get the Red Sox winning the World Series 800 years from now, that would be a miracle in itself. But to be able to name all those other things, well, in 12 verses, I count at least 12 different prophetic statements about who Jesus was in 12 verses in my little uneducated brain. 
that you just look at it and you can find chapter and verse in the New Testament that points back to Jesus of the Old Testament. And now this is so big that I want to illustrate this for just a second. What's the likelihood of prophetic accuracy that somebody could be 800 years here and project out to the future and hit it on the nail? Accuracy. That's a big deal. Because if the scriptures are true and prophecy is accurate and the Old Testament and the New Testament fit together hand in glove, then there's going to be some things that we're going to have to marry together. And for anybody to be able to do that, it takes incredible inspiration of scripture. So a, per, a person far more educated than me in the mathematic fields, Peter Stoner wrote a book called Science Speak. And he discussed in there the probability of Jesus being the Messiah that was prophesied in the Old Testament. All right, understand that? Probability. What's the probability that of all of the hundreds of prophecies that are given out there, that Jesus would be that, that, that one, that, the long-awaited Messiah? The probability of that would be is if he just got eight of them. And there's hundreds of them. If he just got eight of them. I mentioned in Isaiah 53, there's 12. If he just got eight. What would be the likelihood of that being true? Here's the likelihood. One man fulfilling just eight of the hundreds of prophecies of the Old Testament is one in 10 to the 17th power. That is one to the one and a bunch of zeros, 18 zeros. That's a lot of zeros. I don't even know what that number is. The likelihood of somebody being able to do that. Now, again, that, all those zeros mean nothing to me. So let's bring it down closer to home. If you were to take the state of Texas, God bless Texas. Um, you get an amen typically in every service for that. But, uh, and take silver dollars and you were to cover the entire state of Texas two feet deep with silver dollars. What's the probability that you could blindfold some man, take one of those silver dollars, put an X on it, put it out in the middle of the state of Texas, and that person blindfolded go out and find that one silver dollar? That would be the likelihood of Jesus fulfilling eight of the prophecies. That's incredibly difficult outside of God doing some incredible work in this whole thing. We're going to see in 12 verses, 12 verses, that Jesus fulfills a lot of the prophecies in the New Testament. Take Isaiah chapter 53, and let's talk about this. Let's read just six of the 12 verses. You can read the rest of this week on your own, and you'll catch a lot of this on your own. But let's begin verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So he's going to be revealed. Who? Who is it? For he grew up. Now he's going to start talking about the he, about the Messiah. For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of the ground. He had no former majesty that he should look at him, no beauty that you would desire him. He was despised and rejected of men, by men, a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief, as the one from whom men hide their faces. I mean, they didn't even want to look at him. He was not a Greek god, a Roman god, or anything like that. He was nothing to be looked at. And he was despised. Second time he said that in one verse. He was despised. We esteemed him not. Surely he was born, he has borne our griefs. 
carried our sorrows, and we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. By he, uh, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Right out beside that, verse 10, because it's going to say it's the will of the Lord to crush him. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that was brought, that has brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So when you look at this passage, you might see some things in there that, man, that does, I see Jesus in that. But let's peel back some more layers because I think when we do this, we're going to get an accurate picture of who Jesus is. Because again, does our reality match the picture and does the picture match the reality? And sometimes we have this distorted view of Jesus and we need to bring it back to the reality of who is Jesus and what was he about? So we're going to do that by building out his Facebook page. All right, so you, do it, you, you walk along with me as we do this. So let's first of all look at Jesus' profile photo, okay? His profile photo, you got the Renaissance uh, Jesus there. But in reality, in reality, that's probably not what he looked like, all right? I know that must burst your bubbles, uh, your childhood bubbles as it did mine. But a researcher of several kind of came together, archaeologists, historians, a artist um, who, who emphasizes art history, came together, pulled their resources, looked at the archaeology, looked at the research, studied body skeletons of Palestinian people who had been unearthed from the first century. You see the context here? First century Palestinians unearthed in archaeology, they studied the bone structure, they studied the facial structure, they looked at it all, and they recreated a Palestinian middle-aged man. And here is the picture, drumroll. That's Jesus, maybe. I don't know. Pretty unimpressive, right? What happened to the square jaw? What happened to the long flowing hair? The hair was like that because he was probably a Roman haircut. Versus the long flowing hair. So they have reasons behind all this recreation of this really pretty nondescript Jesus, if you will. A pretty nondescript Jesus. And let's look at verse 2 and let's kind of now get the context for this. Verse 2. For, for, he, for, for he grew before him like a young plant. Now, I want you to hear this. Like a young plant, like a root out of the dry ground. Now, that's, that's uncharacteristic for Isaiah, the prophet, to refer to somebody of Jesus' Messiah stature as a, as a little root growing out of a dry ground. Because if you read Isaiah's prophecies, a lot of times when he refers to strong people, he refers to them as oaks. That's the metaphor he prefers. But this time, he refers to him as a young plant, fragile, like a root out of dry ground, parched earth. So you can see how he's laying a metaphor out there for us to understand that this Jesus was pretty nondescript. Okay, and then he goes on. He says, and now he gives us the, the, the fact on the Messiah, he had no form or majesty that we would look at him. No beauty 
that we should desire him. There was nothing about him that put him as the best looking man in the school, in the synagogue, or in the temple. There was nobody who would say, hey, let's let Jesus be our poster child of good looking. Not at all. He was very nondescript in the way that he looks. He was very simple, if you will. It would have, been, it would have made much better sense if, if Jesus would have been born to the Roman emperor. Think about that. Rome conquered the world. Rome ruled the world. If Jesus had been born to the Roman emperor, then he would have immediately had success. He would have succeeded the throne. He would have become the great king of Rome. He would have immediately conquered the world. His messiahship would have been established. Throw out a few miracles in there and boom. Get rid of the corruption of the Roman Empire. Boom. He is now the messiah in everyone's eyes. What what, what, what is that? It would have been better if he had been born in Italy and not Israel. In Jerusalem, not Bethlehem. But instead... He became, as it says in Philippians, in the appearance as a man. Simple, nondescript, not the body of a Greek God, simple man. I want you to understand the reality. If if we don't accomplish anything today, but we love Jesus more, if we'll just love him more for who he is in reality, not in our image of who he is, but in reality, does our picture match the reality? Does the real Jesus, would he please stand up? Because if he stood up, he'd be about maybe that tall. He'd be very nondescript. He wouldn't be beautiful. He wouldn't be handsome. He wouldn't be, he wouldn't be. He's just a simple man. And I want us to understand, Jesus, whenever he came to this earth, he could have been so many other things. When he was God of the universe, stepping into flesh, walking down among flesh, putting on the simplicity, he got as low as he could possibly go. He wasn't a Roman emperor. He wasn't born in the city of Jerusalem. He was born and he was from Nazareth and nothing good comes out of Nazareth. I want you to see the humility of this man. But also, I think we need to see Jesus and his status. Not only Jesus and his profile picture, but Jesus and his status. And now, I I like going in Facebook and looking up the other day how many different forms and statuses. It's not just married and single. There's 11 different statuses. The one that I think intrigues me the most and always creates a story behind it is the one that it's complicated. That just means it's a mess and I don't want to talk about it. It's complicated. Well, if Jesus had a status, I would say his is complicated. His is a complicated situation that he is in. His, his status is complicated. Here's this Jesus entering into time to establish faith, hope, and love, to start a movement that will change the world. And what is the experience? He is despised and rejected. He is despised and rejected. It says it twice in the scriptures. He is despised and he is rejected. Who's he rejected by? He's rejected by the people closest to him, if you will. He's rejected, he's rejected by his own people, those that were he was born into. 
He, he, again, he could have been a Roman. He wasn't born a Roman. He was born a Jew. He was born a Hebrew. He was, he lived among the Hebrew people. And yet the Hebrew people didn't accept him. Had he been a, a Roman citizen, they would have bowed down to him because Rome was in power. Had he been a, a Samaritan, they would have spit at him because he was a half dog. Had he been a, a, an Assyrian or had he been a Babylonian, they would have rejected him because it would have brought back bad images. But instead he was born a Jew among Jews. And you would think that that alone would make him accepted among his own people. But it says he came to his own. His own did not receive him. They didn't receive him. They rejected him. Not only did his own people reject him, but his closest friends rejected him. Probably the saddest verse in all the Bible is, is John chapter 6, verse 66. John chapter 6, verse 66. Ironically, 666. Don't make eschatologists get excited about all that. Okay, it's just this. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. See, when Jesus got the money on that, when Jesus got the truth on the table, when he got the reality out there, he said, this is what it means to follow me. You're going to have to deny yourself. You're going to have to take up your cross. Then you're going to follow me. That's what it means. It's not just having a bunch of friends. It's having a following People who, who will give their lives. And this happened among his own disciple. Peter, in one night, can you imagine? I could, I could slip and fall once. Twice? I'd be kind of thinking, what's wrong with you? Three times in one night he denies him? There's something usually wrong with Peter, right? But what an incredible story of redemption. Even Peter himself said in 1 Peter in his own writings, he said Jesus was the stone that the builders rejected. He was himself one of the ones who rejected Jesus. But it wasn't only that. It was his own family and his own neighbors rejected him. His own family and his own neighbors. At the time, he grew up in Nazareth. People in the streets knew Jesus. He was the carpenter's son. He was Mary's son. He grew up there and he worked and played amongst them. But there was a time that he was in his own city and there was even a time that he even talked about how a prophet is not honored in his own city. And he said this, he says, not this, the carpenter, the son of Mary, the son of Mary, they were, they're, they're talking about Jesus. Is this not the carpenter's son, the son of Mary and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? So Jesus had brothers and sisters and it's not him. And then what does it say? And they took offense at him. You realize that Jesus' brother, one of them was James, and James didn't follow Jesus until after the resurrection. So he couldn't even get his closest family. He couldn't get his own friends and neighbors. He couldn't even get his own people. He couldn't get his own disciples not to reject him. Where he was all alone. Verse 3, look there. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom the men hide their faces. And he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Jesus may have, as studies have shown, 2.2 billion people on the planet earth today who call themselves followers of Jesus. Or call themselves Christians, I should say that. But Jesus isn't looking for friends He's looking for followers. Do you realize that there will be people who say today that I believe in Jesus, 
that Jesus actually only called us three times in all the Gospels to believe in him. Also, excuse me, five times, two times, he said, call me friend. But 20 times, he said, follow me. What Jesus is wanting from us is a following, not a friend. The friendship comes, yes. The believing comes, yes. But ultimately, he's wanting us to be willing to lay down our lives for him. And see, the reality is that Jesus went through, and his complicated relationship was, is that he couldn't get anybody to faithfully walk with him. They all turned their back on him. Jesus was a brave warrior. Number three, Jesus' work. What does his work look like? His work was pretty clear. In fact, if you read the Gospels, you'll find that in Matthew 21 to 28, Mark 11 to uh, 16, Luke 19 to 24, and one-third of the Gospel of John is all dedicated to the last week of Jesus. The week that we're going into is dedicated to the last week of Jesus. You want to read some scripture and study the life of Christ today? Study the last week of Jesus this week. There you go. And you're going to find in there that Jesus Christ willingly gave him himself. Some people have tried to make him into a martyr. He wasn't a martyr. He was a sacrifice. He didn't, nobody took his life. He gave his life. He freely gave his life. Jesus was the one who stood in our place. He took my spot at the guilt table. He took my spot on the cross. That was the work of Jesus. Now, again, I must say this, that there's some bad things that are kind of creeping into our society where we have, what we've done is we've reduced Jesus down to a good moral teacher. Wait, he's a good physician. I need to pray for healing. Sure, do it. I need to pray for his wisdom. Yeah, go for it. We need to understand his number one job was not to make us healthier here on earth. It was not just to to clean up the messes of our life. The number one job in the work of Jesus was to go to the cross and to die in our place. And we cannot forget that. And we've got to elevate that above all other things that Jesus said, did, talked about, everything that he was about in his life. Look at verse 4 and 5. In fact, make it as personal as possible. Every time it has the plural pronoun, are or we, insert your name. Surely he was born for Mike McDaniel's griefs. He carried Mike McDaniel's sorrows. Yet Mike esteemed him as stricken. I was glad to see him go to the cross. Because I don't want to go to the cross. He was smitten by God. Afflicted. He was pierced. For Mike's transgressions. He was crushed for Mike's iniquities. Upon him was the, the chastisement that brought Mike peace. Now think about that. What, what a dichotomy. His chastisement, his violent death, his beating brought me peace. What a dichotomy that is. It doesn't end there. And with his wounds, Mike is healed. You see the beauty of his work, the, 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 the sheer power of his work in that last phrase? We're going to see it in the New Testament, and it's going to be ascribed to Jesus. 
The reality is, is that his work was taking care of our mess. His work on the cross was cleaning up our stupid. He says in verse 5, he calls it transgressions. In verse iniquity, in verse 5 and 11, he calls it iniquities. In verse 6, he calls it iniquity. In verse 8, he calls it transgressions. In verse 9, it's wicked. In verse 12, it's transgressions two times. In verse 12, it's called sin. We call it a lifestyle choice. We call it a generational problem. We call it an addiction. We call it a habit I can't break. We say we're all human. Well, that humanity put deity on the cross. And we cannot forget that. You say, Mike, you're you're shaming me. No. I'm hoping your reality will match the picture. And the picture will match the reality. That Jesus went for you and he went for me. Verse 6, let's all read it out loud together. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has... Thank God that he took on himself. But oh my gosh, what, what, what caused this? It's because everyone has turned to his own way, because we've become our own little deities, because we've figured it out ourselves, because we're our own man, because it's my life and I can do with it what I want, and I can call my own shots. Yeah, go ahead if you want. But here's the reality, is that, that self-centeredness that I get to say, this is my lifestyle choice, and this is my habit, and, and this is my humanity, and I'm just going to have to live with it, and the world's just going to have to accept it, is the reality is that's what sent Christ to the cross. Doing it our own way sent Christ to the cross for us. That's why all, I love the metaphor of all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. When Christ went to the cross, he put all of our sins upon him. And that's why when John the Baptist saw him walking in from afar, he said, look, the Son of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In John chapter 1, verse 29, that's the one who's going to take away the sins of the world. It's in 2 Corinthians 5.21 when Paul, so you heard from John, you hear from Paul. Paul said, for our sake, he made him to be sin. So Jesus literally came and he became what he wasn't so that we can become what we're not. He made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that we, so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. You see the substitution how? He took off his innocence, put it on us. We took off our guilt and we put it on him. Let that sink in. And may it draw you to a deeper love relationship with him today. Deeper worship than you've ever had before. First Peter said he himself bore our sins in his body on a tree that we that that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds we have been healed peter quotes from isaiah 53 by his wounds we are healed Fleming Rutledge in her book called crucifixion said jesus took upon himself the role of the ultimate other 
He allowed himself to become less than human scum. All the evil impulses of the human race came to focus on him. That's a dirty, nasty work that our Savior did. He is not only a warrior going it alone when he's rejected and despised by all. He is not only this humble servant who came, but he is our substitution. He stood in our place. May it stir us to a deeper love relationship than we've ever had. Jesus, newsfeed. Newsfeed. What's your newsfeed on your Facebook? Your newsfeed is where you talk, where you give all your political randerings and rants. It's whenever you share your fake news. It's what we do on news feeds. We forward everyone. Anybody have a relative who likes to forward you things? Raise your hand. It's called unfriend them uh, or unfollow. I don't know. Unfollow. Okay. Uh, yeah, you don't want to unfriend them. You just don't follow them anymore. Um, Jesus' news feed. What, is he, what did he say? I mean, I, I've always known that when Jesus was on the cross, that, it, I mean, there was this, there, there was two or three things that, or excuse me, when he was on trial, there was two or three things that, that that's wrong. That's a kangaroo court. I mean, what's, that, that, that failed there. Where was the justice in Jesus going to the cross? Where was the, the fair and proper trial that was done? I asked a paralegal in our church to help me with some research this week. I really appreciate it because, man, he jumped on it, got, got data back to me. It's like, wow, I didn't know there was all that was on there. I could count two or three things that were done wrong that should have thrown the trial out. It should have been a mistrial from day one. Twelve different infractions that should have caused that to be a mistrial. You want to see the list? Email me. I'll send you the list with the sources. The reality is that it was an absolute mistrial. Why didn't Jesus go hire up, lawyer up, and, and get that thing thrown out of court? He could, have, he could have been free and clear. This was a kangaroo court, and he could have gone on about his business, relocate to Rome or something like that. Why didn't he do that? Because Jesus gave his life. His life wasn't taken from him. And you'll notice that every time he was standing before his accusers, what did Jesus say back to him? Well, to Caiaphas in Matthew 26, verse 62 to 63, he was silent. To the chief priest and the elders in Matthew 27, he was silent. To Pilate in 27, 14, uh, John 19, 9, he was silent. To Herod Antipas, Luke 23, 9, he was silent. To the soldiers who mocked him and beat him, he was silent. Because he was giving his life for you and for me. Friday night, we're going to have this incredible walkthrough experience. I invite you to. I want you to come here with a, with a heart ready to reimagine the final days of Jesus walking this earth. To his accusers, he didn't have much to say. He didn't have anything to say, actually. But what he had said on that cross was this, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. To the thief that was beside him, what did he say? He said, today you will be with me in paradise. To those who want to follow him, he welcomes them. To those who want to reject them, he'll let you reject them. He is our sacrifice. Fall in love with Jesus like you never fall in love with Jesus. He is our contact. Jesus and his contact. How do I get in touch with Jesus? You get on a Facebook page, you want to find out how to contact. Well, how do you get in contact with Jesus? Well, here's the good news. He's already in contact with his followers. 
and he's standing in the gap for us. Verse 12, it says, he makes intercession for the transgressors. I'm the transgressor. What is Jesus doing right now for Mike McDaniel? He is standing in my place, interceding on my behalf, being an advocate for me before the Father. Satan, his name means adversary, accuser. What's Satan doing? He is accusing me. He is shaming me. He is assaulting me. What is Jesus doing? He's advocating for me. He's interceding for me. Every time Satan says, yeah, but you remember what Mike did the other day, and you remember what Mike said, and you remember what Mike looked at, and you remember what, you remember, and I'm, I'm remembering it, his shame is, is weighting me down, then I need to remember what Jesus is doing. He is coming before the Father, and he is saying, I'm interceding for him. I died for him. I set him free. Hebrews 7.25 says, consequently, he is able to save. To the uttermost. There's no, there's no end to his grace. Hey, listen, pedophiles, murderers, rapists, terrorists, he's able to save to the uttermost. Those who draw near to God through him, through him, who's him? Jesus. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. He is interceding. He is standing in the gap. There is my life and all of its brokenness. There's God in all of his perfection. And how in the world am I going to bridge that gap? How am I going to get there outside of the sheer intercession of Jesus? And that's why it says, and Paul's writing to young Timothy, he says, there's one God and there's one mediator between God and men. And it's the man, Christ Jesus. Christ stands in the gap. I love Jesus. But does his profile, does his picture in my mind match the reality? I would dare say that my re- the reality of Jesus is much greater, much more infinite, much more superior than the image that I have in my head. Oh, dear God, may I see you clearer than ever before, Jesus. May I see you as my advocate. May I see you as my sacrifice, my substitution, my warrior, my servant. May I see you better and love you more fully today. And God, everyone in this room, I pray that you would just open your self to, you would make yourself known to, you would clear up the ambiguity, you would make clear what you're wanting to say and do in their life. Father, may may the reality of who you are match who we think you are. Lord, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the cross. In you and you alone, there is life. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.
we're going to have around the room on the landing up front here some pastors, pastors' wives, deacons, deacons' wives. We're going to be just hanging out. During this song, if you want somebody to pray with, you want to enter into that relationship, you want to correct some things in your connection with God, come see us. We'll pray with you. Let's stand together.